Hello and welcome to another podcast episode of my weekly newsletter, Recasting Religious Trauma. This week we are talking with writer Liz Charlotte Grant about shifting faith, therapy, the process of memoir writing, and the tender topic of navigating family boundaries, including when that extends to ending contact with family members. Our guest Liz is an award-winning nonfiction writer. Last year, her newsletter, The Empathy List, was nominated for a Webby Award, making it one of the top five newsletters on the internet. She's been in the Huffington Post, the Christian Century, Christianity Today, U.S. Catholic, and many more places. Her first book will arrive from Erdman's Press in 2024. Hi, everyone. Today we are talking with Liz Charlotte Grant. I originally met her at a Writing for Your Life conference in Colorado when she was way across the room and she asked a question that she had a memoir that she wanted to have published but she didn't think that she would be able to have the persons within the memoir consent to them being in it. Um, and so the she, she ended up pulling the contract. She'll tell you more about this story later. But I was super intrigued by um, this little revelation about her because I have experienced some of the similar things in the process of writing memoir and people who may or may not like what you have to say. So with that little little intro about Liz. Um, She has a lot of interesting things to tell us. Um, I wanted to pick her brain a little bit about family boundaries and how do you navigate a lot of these religious and spiritual shifts when maybe people in your life don't appreciate so much that you are changing and growing in different ways. So Liz, I'm wondering if on being Krista Tippett style, you could tell us a little bit about the faith or spiritual background of your childhood. Absolutely. Thanks for having me too. I feel honored. Um, I grew up very evangelical. So, but like big box store Protestant <laughs> is kind of how I, how I described it, like non-denominational, you know, met in a warehouse, um, <laughs> kind of aiming toward Willow Creek, but maybe not quite at that level. <laughs> Aspirational size. Willow Creek. Aspirational Willow Creek. Um And, you know, what's funny is I actually changed churches a lot growing up because we moved a lot, Um, not for military or anything. It was just my father's uh, jobs. He just moved around different places. And so we really changed our church setting quite a bit, but sort of settled at this one sort of mini mega church on the East Coast. And... I grew up just fully indoctrinated in evangelical culture, white evangelical culture in America. Mm-hmm. So I went to all the youth group stuff. I did all the uh, Mexico. I actually every summer did Mexico and Salvadorian mission trips, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went on all the missions trips short term um, to build houses, which I was not qualified to do. <laughs> yeah. um, and I did youth group worship band and I went to a Christian school, in fact, a Christian private school as well, um, which was very white, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so for myself, I grew up in this world of white American evangelicalism, purity culture, youth group, mission trips, the whole thing. You were, you were like a really good evangelical. Yes, I, I was a really good evangelical. <laughs> so what happened 
to make you like, I mean, not that you're not a really great whatever now, but what kind of like started your shifting process? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people's story of, you know, whether they call it deconstruction or kind of unmasking religious trauma starts um, with structures. And I think that's not how it happened for me. I don't really think structurally as a person. I think I'm very um, internal and relational. And so my structure, my religious understanding started to fall apart as I actually became more aware of my own internal self Um, as a teenager and as I started to really struggle with my parents. And so really what broke apart my, all the boxes that I'd put God in was this sense that my family wasn't trustworthy and that we were dysfunctional and something was deeply wrong with those relationships. And I think that gave me a sense of disconnect between the type of God we said that we loved and knew and the way we actually treated each other. So it was this like disconnect between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, this like practice of of faith and spirituality that really started to rub um, and become very uncomfortable um, and painful. And Mm -hmm. so I, you know, as part of my, you know, good girl evangelical self, I went to Wheaton college. So I went to, the bastion of evangelicalism, as they say. <laughs> they, the, I'm pretty sure the um, kind of just wish I'd gone the the secular route, to be honest with you. But um, I I went to Wheaton, and I think basically I was a mess from my relational traumas growing mm-hmm. up, um, from complex childhood trauma, and I ended up in therapy. Well, actually before that, I ended up in a lot of dysfunctional friendships. Mm. So I had a lot of really troubled friendships. Um, I think as I, I just had no framework for developing healthy and good relationships. And so I was just kind of throwing myself around all over the place. (laughs) And my codependency was so intense that I, just was deeply depressed by the end of college. Um, So I ended up actually in therapy for the first time, my last semester of college, just sort of stumbled into this therapist's office. And she, I mean, it really, to me, felt like she was the first adult to sit with me while I cried. Like that was her essential role in that space. (laughs) Still like Mm -hmm. hand tissues across to me. (laughs) just such a sweet woman. And she was a grad student. So it was a free counseling center that the college offered. And um, at the time I was really heartbroken. I kept falling for guys who barely knew me or I barely knew. And they were these like distant figures. Mm -hmm. And she watched me cry about heartbreak for probably like two months before saying the only thing that I remember from that, from her, which was kind of like, do you, do you think that there might be a connection between these men that you're falling for and your relationship with your father? Uh And that just was mind blowing to me. (laughs) It's very obvious looking back now. (laughs) 
<laughs> you, you don't say. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, that was, um, I mean, she just like dropped a bomb in my lap. And so I yeah. had to then reckon with that. And so um, that started a process for me of emotional and spiritual healing in the offices of these kind therapists. Um, and that I think over time is really what led me to find the safety to both set firmer boundaries with family and, and other kind of people with whom I had dysfunctional relationships and created the safety to move out of the particular faith strictures that I had found myself within. And so all of that just gave me these tools to be able to find a new path to God. And so at this point, I would, I would say I'm, I, I, I think what I've realized is I kind of have evangelicalism in the bones. And so there's just this reality that I was formed in this system. And so a lot of the ways that I think and interact are informed by that system still. It's like, I have these characteristics that won't go away. Um, but I am progressive in my politics. I'm a very boundaried person in my relationships. <laughs> um, and I am much more open in how I see God and God's the expression of God in the world. I still certainly identify as Christian, but because I'm on that more progressive end, I, I, there's more space in how I view these things than there ever was. The, I'm thinking back to when you said like the orthodoxy versus the orthopraxy, you kind of recognized, I think that what your family had been telling you was really important that they weren't really living that out. And like your own internal processes and then like all of this codependency and then therapy later, realizing, I guess, more what your, your, I guess how emotional health was also a really essential part of good spirituality too, is I think where it maybe winded up going to. Yeah, I think um, the incongruence was what really bothered me. I'm an Enneagram 4. So this sense of like authenticity of personhood is very essential to how I think and interact with the world. And so um, I think I just saw this and felt this incongruence probably more than even consciously perceiving it. I, you know, I, I intuited it. It wasn't there. You know, what I was learning about Jesus, who is patient and tender I was not seeing from my father and mother. Yeah. And so that was really disorienting, right? That's disorienting as a child when you're being taught something and you're not seeing that enacted. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of, you know, you have to kind of figure out in your own mind, what do I make of this? And what does this mean for my relationships and for myself? And it's confusing. You know, I think it took me time and, and led to a lot of my own chronic problems of depression, anxiety. Um, yeah. And, and a chronic illness I have there, you know, there were several very physical manifestations of that confusion and turmoil Mm -hmm. that were shown through my childhood, but were not apparent until I started to really do interior work with a therapist. And then all of a sudden it was like, the fact that I'm having panic attacks is a problem. Uh (laughs) I'm keeping my life. (laughs) Yeah, you, you like weren't allowed to acknowledge something that. Else. Yeah, there's yeah. like a biological thing happening, but also something that's coming from somewhere else. You yeah. know, 
not a it's not a random physiological process. There's something else happening, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have an origin story, and maybe we can look in a little bit deeper to this. Right. Yeah. Well, I am curious. I think. Well, I guess what I found is that in the writing of my book, which began like as sort of a pure memoir, there was a lot of unpacking and healing that happened through the actual writing process itself. Um, And I don't know, I know you've been like working on this current writing journey, like you've been trying to publish a book for 10 years. So like, I don't know when exactly you wrote your memoir, but can you tell us a little bit about that process and like putting your story on paper and what it was like? And then, then we'll get to that more publishing end of it, but just the process. I wrote my memoir from 2017 to about 2020 is about when I was writing. Um, That coincided for me with a season of surprise chronic illness. So I, I have alluded to this, but I have a rare disease that popped up out of nowhere um, in my retina. So in the, the back of my right eye and my central vision, um, that was a very, traumatic experience in itself. And at the time I was 29, I was perfectly normal, healthy. So we don't know where it came from, but you have this thing. It doesn't seem to be connected to anything else. Um, So I was also the lead parent at that time. I had been running a birth doula business on the side in addition to writing and other things. Uh Um, And because I needed more going on. That's just the person. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And I had been writing something else and just was interrupted by this disease and couldn't think about anything else. I mean, you know, compulsively only thinking about this. And so I started just compiling my own medical story um, and ended up writing that family did not factor into that at all, despite the fact and if your listeners are therapists or, you know, familiar with somatic work, they will immediately see the connection between these things. But I did not. Six months before my eye problem emerged, I had stopped speaking to my parents. Oh. So I had cut my parents out of my life six months before this this issue, this health issue came up. There might be a connection. We don't have, we don't have proof that there is, but doesn't it seem odd? Interesting (laughs) timing. I know I was under just like intense stress and pressure internally as I worked through what that meant to be out of relationship with my parents um, due to trauma, due to their own resistance to creating a healthy relationship. Um, That itself was like a very long process in therapy to decide upon. And then the fact that, I had made the decision and then had this health thing come up almost immediately after within a year of making that decision was just uncanny. And so I put down whatever else I'd been writing. I started writing this health thing. I wrote an account of that just from a perspective of like, this is a crazy medical thing that happened to me. That was very journalistic. And, you know, it dealt with some other issues too, um, specifically this question of healing, which often comes up for chronic sufferers where you're going, you know, people around you, especially in spiritual or religious spaces are going, well, have you prayed for healing? Have you tried Mm -hmm. this practice? Have you, you know, and so that was the initial scope of the book. And I was um, lucky enough and really grateful to get into this writing workshop 
with one of my uh, writing heroes and she, who's a memoirist and she read this book of mine and gave me some feedback and basically said, I don't think you've found your story yet, which was infuriating um, because I'd already been working on it for two years and had a draft that I'd been sending out to agents and things like that to try to sell this book. But she said, I have full confidence you're going to find it. Like, I'm not worried. You're going to find the story. Like this right here is situation. Have you heard of this idea, Christine? This book she recommended is called The Situation, The Story by Vivian Gornick. And Lauren worked through an entire session just on this idea of, listen, there's a difference between what happens to you and recording what happens, what's happening to you like a journalist and telling and crafting a story. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting to me. She gave the, she gave the example of um, educated the memoir, which is a fabulous memoir, but really is just the situation. Like here's this crazy thing that happened. Isn't that crazy? Right. Uh When you get to the end of that book and actually many other memoirs that are on the market, often I'm left with the question, but what does it mean? Like there's that underlying so what that makes you go like, why did they write the story? Yeah. It's not just because it Even was Even if great. it's a great story, you need like Even that other thing. Even if it's a great thing. story, you're kind of like, I want you to come, like bring me somewhere. Like give me mm-hmm. some insight or just show me what it meant for you. Even if you don't know why it happened, there's no resolution in the story itself because it's memoir. You can't always mm-hmm. manufacture those things, right? Like you could in fiction bring me somewhere. Like I want to go on an emotional journey. And so she really annoyingly and rightly nudged that, like kind of needled me about that. And so I actually went back to the drawing board and rewrote it again um, and realized I needed to write about my family. That was the story underneath was the fact that I was going through this experience without my family Mm -hmm. and in the midst of grieving the relationship with my parents that I didn't have anymore. And so all of a sudden the book, and I was so resistant to it. As soon as I realized that's what it was that I needed to write about, uh-huh. I was so angry. <laughs> yeah. You're like, As, this is not what I wanted to do. Right. And, you know, with complex childhood experiences, often part of the trauma there is the fact that everything was about the parent, you know? Yeah. The story was never the child. It was the parent, Mm. right? And that's not true of every situation, but often a lot of dysfunction comes down to whether it's like neglect or other things. It's it's the parent was the primary person in the relationship and not the child, Um, which is not how it's supposed to be, right? When you're talking Mm -hmm. about a parental relationship. So I felt like the fact that my story is now about my parents feels so infuriating. I just don't... You know, and I, and so I resisted it for quite a while and then realized she's absolutely right. That is the emotional core of this story. It's the mm-hmm. fact of grieving alongside this illness. And so um, went back to the drawing board, added that all in. And really, you know, when I, when I write about family, I've had to, I think when I was in relationship with family, it was much more complicated for me mm-hmm. than when I set the firm boundary with them. They hated my writing, by the way, across the board. (laughs) Any sort of sight on them was too exposing. I think 
perhaps because of guilt, but <laughs> I think also fear, mm-hmm. you know, there's just like a fear of exposure. Um, so they didn't want me to write. They were very uh, resistant to any sort of writing like that before. Mm-hmm. So often I felt like when I was writing before setting that boundary with my parents, it was like they were over my shoulder reading everything I was writing. Mm-hmm. So I'd be like typing and my mom would be saying things on the right and my dad would be saying things on the left. And it was so confusing, right? It, how did I, you know, I couldn't even hear my own self. But then after I had set this boundary with them, all of a sudden I was able to separate. And so I was able to say like, what does Liz think about this? Yeah. <laughs> but it took that separation to be it able really to did. hear for your me own it did. Yeah, for me, it did. I think probably not everybody is that way. Sure. Some people are probably superpowered in their boundaries. I needed the actual separation to just yeah. say, you can't speak into this. Like you can't control yeah. this part of my life. This is a calling that I believe has been placed in my life. I need to tell the story mm-hmm. according to me. So yeah, that was, that was just complicated. So anyway, that's how it all of a sudden became a trauma memoir too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's like medical <laughs> and family side by side, um, which was complicated. And so my, my process was like, I'm just going to get it all out my way first. Just all the names, all the situations, everything that I want to say um, about this absence and this break in relationship. Mm-hmm. And set that aside, like side by side with the medical drama. And then, then I went back and edited, took out all of their names, mm-hmm. just used their title, mother, father, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, took out all identifying details, took out the state where they lived, mm-hmm. any, anything that could have tied it back to them. I went online and got a, um, I found out that the New York times journalists use a service to delete their information online oh. and it's called delete me. And so I signed up for a subscription and it also protects family members. So my goal was like to make them and myself untraceable. Hmm. So that even if somebody really was looking, they wouldn't be able to find anything. Yeah. That would put them or me in danger. And then I also looked into libel insurance just in case. Yeah. You were really doing (laughs) research there. I I was determined to run all the funds through an LLC. I was, I was doing everything I could to just make it protected. Mm -hmm. Um, both to protect my family, but also to protect myself and my my family that I have now with my two kids and my husband. Yes. Um, and then I kind of geared up to see, is this going to be a thing? Started pitching and, it around. <laughs> yeah. And then it was almost a thing. It was almost but... a it was It was close. <laughs> <laughs> there was one publisher who did decide to go for it. They were a small press. They weren't going to pay me in advance. So no mm-hmm. money up front. Um, and they were kind of willing to do it. They, you know, they were kind of, they, they publish a lot of stuff that's, you know, they, they just have their print on demand so they can do more with less. So they were like, yeah, you're great. Sure. We'll publish this, you know? And then um, as we got talking, and they realized I wouldn't be able to provide signed releases okay. from my parents or any other people included, like my family members and, and extended relatives also were not going to be excited 
to uh-huh. be right. Um, so even disguised, I knew I'm not going to go ask for permission. Like mm-hmm. I have with my agent at the time was not Chip then it was um, John Blaze, and John and I were discussing what do I feel comfortable with. Because that legal question is still a question, right? Like, mm-hmm. we have to figure that out. And so I sort of settled on, in conversation and prayer and talking with therapists and friends who are therapists, and, you know, like, I kind of decided on, I'm okay with the publisher sending them a draft, and I can write a note. Mm-hmm. I don't want to communicate directly with them, and mm-hmm. I don't want to ask their permission, but I'm happy to show it to them and hear their feedback. So that is what I decided. I was like, that seems like a pretty safe way to go about that. But I knew they weren't going to be like, sure, go ahead. We're uh-huh. excited for you. <laughs> Great book. We love it. Yeah. I was really, I liked that part a lot when I did that thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, the essence, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I looked like an asshole. Yeah, cool. Put me in. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they weren't, they weren't going to be happy about that. And so... Um, <laughs> so I was very direct with the publisher. Basically, I was filling in an intake form for the marketing, the marketing okay. questionnaire and stuff. And they were like, who are the permissions you need to get? And so um, I explained the situation and they took it to their publisher. The editor took it to his publisher. And the publisher was like, if she doesn't have signed releases, we can't do it just legally. Mm-hmm. And I think that is just an issue of this particular publisher, which is a small risk averse. Uh, yes, 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 yes. So they're more risk averse than most, I think, because mm-hmm. they're tiny. You know, some publishers are willing to take on that risk, others are not. That's just how it is, you know. Right. But it was very clear to me, I am not going to go to my parents on my hands and knees begging mm-hmm. for permission to write this, you know. So that was a very clear this isn't going to work. Sorry. Yeah. Like I'm not going to yeah. do that. So I'm curious. I mean, we know that you weren't speaking to them. I wonder, I mean, tell us whatever you want to, but like, how did you reach that decision where where you decided for my own well-being, I need to not be in contact? Yeah, I think that's a complicated decision for most people if they get there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because it's such an extreme choice. Um, Mm -hmm. So even in I mean, you can imagine in non-Christian spaces, that's, you know, secular outside of church spaces, that's more common, but it's still not embraced. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) And in church spaces, it is like the worst choice you can make. Mm -hmm. Honor your father and mother. Yeah. Right. And so I was still very evangelical when I made that choice. Yeah. And so that was kind of a fascinating journey. You know, I'd been in therapy for about a decade on and off doing EMDR work, doing another energy therapy that I really like, Splunkna. I had done like a lot of different things to try to get at some of these traumas that were deeper and more Mm. invasive and had really extended periods of therapy at key moments in my 20s in that decade. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that for me was very important to have some more clarity on, you know, what is this and what, what happened and, you know, who am I and what, how should I be treated? (laughs) You know, I married very young and um, my sweet husband is an Enneagram five, which is a very much more detached from emotions Uh 
kind of personality. And so for him, I think he was like a little mystified, but willing to get on board, you know, mm-hmm. he, he kind of like withheld judgment. He was like, I need to see all the sides I need to understand <laughs> it from every angle. You know, the fives are called investigators. And yeah. did you have much contact with your family at this point or was it? Okay. Uh, during college, my parents' wish was like that I would call at least once a week. Um, and I obliged to that wish if grumpily. Um, and then as I got into my 20s, and especially with young kids, that kind of changed into more like a once a month, once a month rhythm. Um, but I was getting texts and calls and phone calls and or and text messages and DMs and whatever all the time anyway. And so even though I was kind of had this boundaried yeah. uh, interaction with, with them and had in my own mind kind of what boundaries I wanted, those, those lines were not shared and agreed upon and were often heavily disputed. <laughs> uh-huh. They were really invested in communicating more. Yeah. I think that's a really, honestly, it's a good picture of like what my parents were like generally, which was kind of, I think, controlling demanding and neglectful at the same time (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and they are you know they didn't have perfect parents i think for a long time my my internal over sympathizer wouldn't Uh let me feel that pain because i knew the pain that they had been raised in Mm -hmm. and had had to overcome even just to be you know alive today but i think as i became a parent myself in my twenties, I really had to start reckoning with, okay, so my mom's interacting with my kids like this. Do I want her to do that? Mm -hmm. I want to interact with my kids like that. And so as we were kind of both in relationship together and also um, as I was exploring what it meant to be a mother, all of a sudden I'm being faced with, wait a second, why did they treat me like that? I would never treat a person like that. I would never treat a child like that. And that became a really helpful tool to kind of hold up my own childhood to me and say, it could have gone different. Yeah. That's what so many of my clients say too. That's like, that seems to be such a realization for people who've gone through massive childhood trauma. Like, wait, if I can do better as a parent, I want to do better as a parent. Why didn't my parents do better for me? I think it's a really revealing time, right? There's so many questions that arise And so much of our own pain becomes evident as we watch our kids. I think one of the things that was a big deal for me is both of my kids are very emotive as Mm -hmm. most kids are, because that's (laughs) (laughs) literally their one tool to communicate (laughs) when they're so little, you know? Um, And I think reading about the fact that crying for my baby was her form of exercise. That was her way of growing. That was her only means of communicating my first mm-hmm. girl. For for me, that was really clarifying because the way that my parents reacted to crying and the way that I reacted to crying looked really different. Yeah. And I saw in myself this, this kind of question emerge about like, what if it had gone differently? What if they had mm-hmm. done this work in themselves? How would that have changed how they interacted with me as a child? And what would that have meant then for me going forward? You know, what kind of, 
what kind of kid and adult do I want my children to be based on the interactions they've had with me? You know, Mm -hmm. that was really interesting. So I think a lot of those things were kind of rising to the surface. I think also my parents themselves went through some hard stuff around that time in their own marriage. Um, And I think that was, that was hard to watch and also revealing. Hmm. So for example, when I got engaged, the week I got engaged, my mom called me and said, I'm thinking about separating from your dad. Uh Just coincidental timing. I'm sure. Right. At the time, that's how I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) You might see it differently now. Mm -hmm. Um, They did not end up separating or getting a divorce, but how their church treated them, how they treated Mm -hmm. each other through that exchange, what they chose to turn to, to Uh heal. All of that was very revealing. And I think particularly in relationships, like I think I started to have conversations with my parents about some of the pain that I'd experienced. And I'd say many more with my mom than my dad. Um, My dad was less open to them and I was actually less free to have those conversations with him myself, just in my own internal self. Mm -hmm. And what really um, sparked the separation. Um, cause initially I thought, oh, I can work, I can work through these issues in relationship. Like that's the best way to do this. Um, and so I tried and tried and tried, kept encouraging my parents to go to therapy. Eventually my mom told me I'm not going to therapy. Please stop bringing it up. Okay. And was very clear. <laughs> she gave you the answer at least. She gave me an answer. Um, and then there was one Christmas where there was a conflict with my sister and me and my father ended up telling my sister's younger. And there's always been this kind of competitive dynamic between us. My father ended up telling her that her husband, (laughs) that I was the better sister. So my husband had got the better sister and that, (sighs) yeah, that clarified for me so much of my past history with him. And I realized all of these things that had been brewing where I just didn't feel safe and I needed space to work through. And I was having trouble setting boundaries with him around that. And I was like, why would I have trouble setting boundaries with him? That's strange. Um, Not realizing the level of enmeshment there. Yeah. And so I realized I needed space to work through it. And so initially I'd emailed him and said, I'm concerned about some of these things that I've seen. I don't think we want the same kind of relationship and I need space. I will let you know when I want to re-engage. He abided by that decision of mine for about a month before he started to contact me in every way. (laughs) Oh, wow. Ways that we'd never contacted each other before. DMs on Instagram and Facebook and comments and Hmm. phone calls and emails. And, you know, my father's not a very communicative guy. He travels a lot for work. He was very busy. So it was kind of a surprise that he adopted all these different forms of communication to try to reach out to me. And then I started getting like letters. I got a huge letter in the mail. Then I got a postcard. (laughs) I actually, with the letter, I actually didn't open it because I had told him I didn't want to communicate. So I put it back into another envelope unopened. 
Jeremy wrote him a note, my uh-huh. husband, saying, Liz will be in touch when she wants to be in touch. Yeah. We mailed it back to him unopened. And then postcards started coming. <laughs> wow. This is just bombardment. Uh-huh. And my, my mom visited, I think, twice during that time. And all of a sudden, being in a relationship with her was a part-time job because she was so anxious about what this meant, about her, about our family, about my relationship with her. You know, that was very complicated because the kids were little and they were the only grandkids for my parents. So that became very complicated. Um, So she and I had a lot of very hard conversations. And the last conversation we had um, was in my kitchen and she was yelling at me and telling me that I was a bad Christian Hmm. and I had no right to be doing any writing or speaking about anything faith related because I wasn't in contact with my father. And I said over and over, mom, I've told you, I don't want to talk about this with you. This is between me and dad. She ignored me. And so finally I asked her to leave my house. So that was, that was a loss because my hope was actually that I could maintain relationship with her, but that was clearly not possible because she wasn't Mm -hmm. willing to respect my boundary that I wouldn't discuss things with her. So yeah, it was a painful decision. It was really painful. And then the two years after that really was a time of grief and doubt Mm -hmm. where I just really wasn't sure if I'd made the right call, you know, and probably every few weeks was re-examining, should I get back in touch? Yeah. You know, am I healed enough? What would mean I was healed enough? What do I even want from them? You know, why would I get back in touch? Why wouldn't I get back in touch? You know, it's just yeah. like a time of really intense questioning. Um, and ultimately, my my therapist was like, you know, because I was in therapy at the time, too. And she had not necessarily encouraged me or discouraged me from setting this boundary with them. Um, that was 100% my call. But she she did kind of ask me, you know, like, what do you want from them? Like, what would reaching out to them give you? And I was like, well, really nothing. Like, it would just make me not feel guilty. And she was like, huh. <laughs> and I sat with that for a little bit. I was like, that seems like a you problem, doesn't it? <laughs> interpretation of what, what the answer was there. Um, you know, that's like an interior problem. That's not an external yeah. problem they can fix for me, you know? So, um, but it was cute because she just, she just was kind of baffled. Like, do you miss them? Like, it seems like they don't even know you. Like what's, yeah. you know, what do you, what are you really getting in that relationship? And like, what's, what's the aim? I just was, had so much, I think so many ideas about what family was supposed to be mm-hmm. passed from church probably even more than from the Bible. And I think it felt very freeing once I was out of relationship relationship with my parents to see that the Bible is a book that um, honors the autonomy of humans. Kind of as I continued to explore, I, th- I think it felt like I couldn't be a Christian, a good Christian and be out of touch with my parents. Uh-huh. But as, you know, I made the decision because it felt like I couldn't make any other decision. 
Mm-hmm. Like that was the only choice left. My parents weren't willing to work through things with me. I wasn't able to work through things with them in the way I wanted. Mm-hmm. And we needed, we needed the pause. Like we needed, you know, it's not, I hope it's not a forever boundary, but like for now it is, you know, because mm-hmm. interacting with them is a part-time job for me and I don't mm-hmm. have time for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You are able to like, address any of the issues in your relationship with them but then you also notice that it was just causing this own burying yourself your mom and your dad talking over your shoulder when you're trying to like think your own thoughts it was such a heavy burden and I think as I moved into more comfort in motherhood I think that was another part too where it was like I need I need the space the relational space space for my children and for other relationships, like I don't want all of my energy to go toward these family relationships and working through past issues. I want to have emotional space for other things. I don't know if you have any like words of wisdom or advice. I mean, you know, a listener could pick up on that. But what I am gleaning is like, it felt like you had no other options. Like this wasn't a lighthearted or like, you know, you really went into this seriously when I felt like you had no other real good way to to address the issue and thinking of it like this is what I need now I hope it's not permanent but like also if it has to be then that's kind of where you go but yeah I don't know any any hard-won wisdom Mm. or any additional wisdom you want to share I think these decisions are so tender you know when we grow up with complex childhood trauma our instinct is that our needs don't matter and Mm -hmm. so that is like the fundamental thing we are taught is that like you are less important. And so your experience of your family and yourself is less important than theirs of you. And I think it was very freeing to say, that's not true. (laughs) My singular life is only mine. And Mm -hmm. so I have to own the things in myself And, you know, for me, it wasn't about happiness. It was actually about purpose. Like I I felt Mm -hmm. that I couldn't do the other things well that I needed to do that were right in front of me. And so it was a sense of embrace of my own limitations too. Like I I can't actually mother my parents while Mm -hmm. I'm mothering my children. I can't actually have weekly phone calls with them and try to keep up with writers across the country that I'm trying to be friends with. You know, I can't write the memoiristic work I need to be writing if they're on my shoulder. Right. And so a lot of that was very clear to me. Like there is a limitation actually on me and and my energy and time. And it's okay to acknowledge that. So I think some of those things were just, you know, that I just started to notice myself. (laughs) And see that I was a person worth caring for and that it was okay to say there were things I couldn't do. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. You met your human limitations and and like had to become okay with them. And I just love what you said about like when we have child complex childhood trauma, we learn that our needs don't matter. And this is your act of being like, actually, my needs do matter. I don't have infinite energy and that's also okay to be human in that way. Right. What do I need to do? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Liz. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to and how people might find you? Sure. Um, I write a newsletter called The Empathy List, and it is, I won a Webby nomination last year for it, which was wild. Oh, <laughs> I had like 300 subscribers or something. And I was like, I think they made a mistake. I don't know how this happened. Did you do that on purpose? Yeah. But, I, you know, that nomination meant it was like one of the top five newsletters on the internet. So I was just delighted. So oh. um, it's a newsletter where I talk about empathy and curiosity. And so I say it's for people who want to see a more empathetic and curious Christianity. And so I tend to talk about progressive Christian things, you know, politics from the left side and a Christian view, but also things that I'm learning and curious about. So I tend to talk about a lot of the stuff and tell stories and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. So um, that's mostly where you can find me. That's actually thempathylist.com. And then I have, I'm pretty active on Instagram at Liz Charlotte Grant. And I'm writing a book. So I have mm-hmm. a I have a contract for a totally different book. Um Yay. this one about reapproaching the scriptures after you've let go of inerrancy and really reapproaching God once you've left some of the strictures of faith. So mm-hmm. it's a very um mixed genre kind of book. So I write about sciences and fine art alongside <laughs> weird nice. Jewish myths and <laughs> Yeah, like a lot of different, and lots of so much, lots of non-dead white guy theologians. A lot of non-dead white guy theologians. So that's (laughs) my goal. It's like a lot of women. Um, So it's just a very different perspective on the book that we think is really boring and tired. Um, My goal is to re-enchant it. So Mm -hmm. yes. Well, I'm excited for you. Thank you. All the things you're up to. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Christine. It was a delight to talk to you.